Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 to 10. Hear the word of the Lord. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Let no one who, or let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary in doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Let's pray. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Over the 30-some years of being a pastor, I have come to a repeated conclusion about the most effective evangelistic program that the church could ever use. Uh, It would be a program that would make us the most attractive organization on the whole planet. And uh, we would still need to go out and get the gospel out, but we would also have people coming to us and asking us about ourselves. This is it. This is the program, and I've realized this over and over. And the program is this. If Christians would live as Christians, that would be the most effective program we could ever institute. If Christians would live as Christians. Now, the letter to the Galatians is an interesting letter because for four chapters, Paul emphasizes that we are right before God, in a right relationship with God, by faith in Jesus Christ alone. It's by His grace. It's by the work of Christ alone, not by our works, not by the way we live our lives. And then after establishing that over and over and over again, he spends the last third of the book, of the letter, talking about how Christians should live. Because Christian living flows out of Christian faith. Faith in Jesus Christ is evident in the way we live our lives. Now, what we're doing in these last two chapters is we're going from general to specific. Last week we saw general. We saw the fruit of the Spirit. And if you look back uh, in verses five or chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, we have the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now, everybody will say, yes, these are wonderful virtues, wonderful characteristics. And now what we have is the rubber meeting the road. Now, in this chapter, we have some specific instances about Christian living, some specific applications of the fruit of the Spirit. And Paul brings out three specific applications. 
Why these specific applications? We don't really know. Probably something that has to do with what was going on in the region of Galatia and in the church in Galatia. But the three applications are when somebody falls into sin, how should other Christians respond? The the second situation is when somebody teaches the church the Word of God. How should the church treat the teacher of the Word of God? And then the last one, The last situation, concrete situation, is when somebody has a need, particularly somebody in the church with a concrete need. So we're going to go through these these three specific applications of the fruit of the Spirit. And the first one is in verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, that's the problematic, that's the situation, if anyone is caught in a transgression. Now this, this word caught could mean one of two things. It could mean that this person finds himself caught in a transgression. Or it means that he was caught, that somebody caught him in this transgression. But however uh, that might be, the situation is different from what we saw last week. Last week we saw the works of the flesh. And if you go back and look at chapter 5, verse 19, it says, Now the works of the flesh are evident, Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. And then he says, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do or practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So, in that description, we're talking about people who practice these things as a way of life, who walk in these works of the flesh. Now, in chapter 6, we're not talking about someone who, as a way of life, practices these things. We're talking about a sincere Christian believer who has been overtaken, who has fallen, who has given in. And it may be that he gave in or she gave in to something in this list, to sexual immorality, to an outburst of anger, to an excess of alcohol or something like that. It may be that the particular sin is in this list, but it's not characteristic. Does that make sense? We're talking about someone who was overcome and who fell. How should the Christian church respond in this situation? And by the way, there's there's an assumption here. The assumption here is that this person is a member of the church and that those who respond are members of the church. Now, how do we know that? Well, back in chapter 3, he talked about baptism. So he's talking to baptized people. And when people are baptized, they're baptized into the church. And now we find out that these people are in a mutually accountable relationship. So baptized people who are in a mutually committed, mutually accountable relationship, that's what we mean by church membership. Now, it's interesting that uh, coming back to the United States and here to South Florida, I've received more pushback when I've introduced the idea of church membership than any other topic. And I don't know whether that has to do with American individualism or South Florida chill, but when we talk about membership, this is what we're talking about. Baptized believers in committed relationships to each other. That's the assumption here. Because he tells one group of Christians to go and deal with another group of Christians. And when they do that, we don't sense that anybody would say, who do you think you are? Why are you doing this? They're in this relationship already. 
Now, the, the people who should respond to this situation, Paul calls them the spiritual. It says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual... Now, who are the spiritual? Well, all we need to do is back up to last week, to chapter 5, and we find who the spiritual are. Those who are walking according to the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So these spiritual are not some super saints, a different category. These are Christians, common Christians, who are ordering their lives according to the fruit of the Spirit and keeping in step with the Spirit as we saw last week. Now, what should the spiritual do? The goal of the spiritual is to restore the erring brother or sister. That's the verb here. It says, you who are spiritual, restore. And that is always the purpose when there is what we call church discipline. When a a Christian has fallen into sin, what should the church's goal be? The church's goal should always be to bring back that person, to restore that person to fullness of fellowship. And by doing so, in doing so rather, we should exhibit one particular, particular fruit of the Spirit. What's that? Still in verse 1. We should do it in a spirit of? What's it say? Gentleness. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Now, when you have made a mistake, how do you want people to treat you? With harshness or with gentleness? And he's reminding us that if we are those who are called to restore, how should we do that? We should do that with great gentleness. And in addition to gentleness, we need to do it with humility because Paul says here, keep watch on yourself as well, lest you too be tempted. So don't go in with an idea of superiority. I can't believe you did this. How could you do this? But rather, you fell into this and I need to beware as well because I know that I am weak and I am liable to fall into the same sort of sin. So gentleness and also humility. Now he says here that if we will do this, if we will do this in verse 2, It says, if we will bear one another's burdens, and the burden, particular burden here is the burden of sin. And sin is a burden. It weighs us down. He says, if we will bear other people's sins, if we will enter into their situation, if they have been caught in a sin and we will help bear the burden of that sin, we will fulfill the law of Christ. Fascinating that he would talk about the law of Christ. He does that only twice in his letters. Because for four chapters, he has been saying, not by law, but by grace. Not by law, but by grace. And now he says, we will fulfill the law of Christ. What is, uh, what is the law of Christ? Well, if you go back, we're still referring to chapter 5 and what came before. And if you look at uh, chapter 5, verse 14. 5.14 gives us a clue. It says, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. What is the law of Christ? The law of Christ is to love. But Christ uh, gave that uh, more specifically, and He gave it in the form of a new commandment in John chapter 13, verse 34. Uh, John chapter 13, verse 34, Jesus said, Love one another 
as I have loved you. And by doing that, he upped the ante, didn't he? He didn't just say, love your neighbor as yourself, but he said, love one another as I have loved you. And by bearing the sins of others, what are we doing? We are loving as Christ loved. Now think about this. Bearing one, uh, another person's sins is one of the most Christian things we can do. Why is that? Because this is what Christ did. Christ bore our sins. In, uh, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, uh, he talks about the fact that Christ bore our sins in His body on the tree, on the cross. And it's the exact same verb. Bear one another's burdens, Christ bore our sins. So why should, why should Christians in particular be, be willing to enter into the messiness of other people's lives and bear their sins? Well, because that's exactly what Christ did for us. He's the one who took our sins upon Him and bore the weight of those sins and bore the penalty for those sins, suffering for those sins. And then He says, love each other even as I have loved you. In our church in Mexico, we had a number of times uh, as the church grew and, and we had mo- many new Christians come into the church and the gospel was new to them and Christian ethics were new to them. And we had more times than, than I would like to admit, we had a number of young ladies get pregnant out of wedlock. Uh, and if sometimes it was the young man who had gotten his, his girlfriend pregnant out of wedlock. And their sin was a private sin committed in private but when pregnancy takes place, it becomes a public matter. And so it became something that the church had to deal with publicly. And I remember on one occasion, we were going to deal with it publicly uh, with gentleness and humility on a Sunday when we had a team visiting from Georgia. Now, if you know anything about missionaries, when a team comes to visit, we, we like to put our best foot forward. We, we like to show people that we're doing the work of the gospel and any investment they might have in us is paying off and the gospel is taking root and developing. And I thought, oh no, this team is here and they're going to observe what we're like. And we went ahead and the way we dealt with it was this. After the service, we would say, um, we have some, one of our own who wants to say something to you. And we've met with her. We've met with her father. We've met with her mother. We've worked through this in private as elders. And then we come to the public occasion and we would invite her up with her father. And she would address the congregation and she would say what had happened. And then uh, the father sometimes would well and and we would express that we we weren't doing church discipline because this was a confession And our whole goal was to straighten out that which hadn't started right. And we would work with the young lady and work with the young man to to try to help them get things in order that had not started in order. And uh, then we'd pray and people would cry. and, and, And then the congregation would come around this young lady and they would embrace her and they would encourage her and they would say, what can we do for you? And I was embarrassed because of this team there that they might wonder what we were like. And the team came to me afterward and said, that was amazing. That was their reaction. They said, that was amazing. They said, that's what we need to do for each other. We need to 
restore one another. Will it happen in Christian churches that we will fall into sin? Yeah. How will we respond to that? By avoiding, by gossiping, by passing judgment, or by coming together in gentleness and humility to restore that which has fallen. Now, verses 3 to 5 may be a separate topic. It's a bit difficult in this text to figure out how many topics there are. It may be a separate topic, but I think rather it is developing the idea of keeping a watch on ourselves from verse 1, where he says, keep watch on yourselves lest you too be tempted. And then if you jump over verse 2 and keep reading at verse 3, it goes very smoothly. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. So it looks like it, it flows from that same idea, developing this idea of keeping a watch over ourselves and not thinking too highly of ourselves than we ought. And, and by the way, in, in, in Paul's letters, a number of times God warns us about thinking too highly of ourselves, of how, about having too high a self-image. Uh, in the, the sheet I handed out, there are a number of verses. I'll just mention them to you. Romans 12.3, 1 Corinthians 3.18, 1 Corinthians 8.2, 1 Corinthians 10.12, 1 Corinthians 14.37. The Corinthians were kind of full of themselves. And so Paul had to say to them, don't have too high an opinion of yourself. Now, if you made it through the 70s and 80s, the pop psychology of the 70s and 80s, you were taught that your biggest problem in life is that you have too low a self-image. Now, even psychologists have said that was a bad idea. They have walked away from that and moved more towards a biblical perspective, at least some of them, and saying, no, that's not our problem. Our problem is that we think too much of ourselves. We think too highly of ourselves. And Paul just flat out says, if you think you're something when you're nothing, you're deceived. You're self-deceived. And then he says, rather, what should we do? We should test our own works. Verse 4. And then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. That is, look at what you do, evaluate what you do, and whatever you do, let that be yours. That's what you will take before God. Verse 5, For each one will have to bear his own load. Now, this is interesting, isn't it? Because it's, it's kind of the opposite of our tendency. If we see somebody else fall into sin, we might tend to think ourselves superior to that person. But Paul says, no, come under that same burden with that person. And when somebody else has a success... We might want to take that success as our own. And Paul says, no, don't do that. That's not yours. That's his. That's hers. So don't boast in that which is not yours, but do take responsibility for sin that is not yours, which is just the opposite of what we want to do. Uh, We're in the end of football season, starting basketball season. And it's interesting how we talk about our favorite teams, isn't it? If they lose, we say, they lost. And if they win we say, we won. Why is that? We want to distance ourselves from the failure and we want to take their victory as if we had a part in it. And Paul says, no, don't do that. Do the opposite. If somebody loses, one of your brothers or sisters loses by falling into sin, say, we lost. Because this is ours as well. We are family here. We are body here. And we lost. And so we're going to come out of this together. 
And if one of your brothers or sisters has something that is superior to you and a success that is greater than yours, then say, congratulations, that's wonderful. He won. She won. And don't try to take credit for yourself for that. Verse 5 sounds like it's the opposite of verse 2. Verse 2 says, Bear one another's burdens. And then in verse 5 it says, For each will have to bear his own load. Sounds contradictory, but it's not, because it's these two separate ideas. If somebody has a burden, a failure, bear that with that person. But how will you stand before God? You will stand before God based on your own load and what you have done in this life. And the, the next, that's, that's the, first, the, first, um, the first application of the fruit of the Spirit. The second application of the fruit of the Spirit is when you have a teacher, a teacher of the Word of God. It's in verse 6. Let the one who has taught the Word share all good things with the one who teaches the Word of God. So the second application is for those who are taught the Word of God to provide for the needs of the teacher of the Word of God. Uh, Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians, where he explains what we should do, and he actually, he actually refers to Christ, and he says, in the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the Gospel should get their living by the Gospel. In other words, the church should provide for those who teach the Word and and preach the Gospel. Now, this verse puts preachers in an awkward situation because the preacher has to stand up and explain it and say, you should pay your preachers, right? But Paul was able to speak freely about paying ministers because he had an unusual practice. He did not receive money from the, the church to whom he was ministering He rather worked on his own or he received money from other churches so that he could preach freely to the church with which he was at the moment. So he was free to write and say these sort of things without them saying, oh, Paul, you're looking for money. He wasn't. He might have been looking for money, as he actually asked for on some occasions, uh, to go to other churches and to take the gospel where it was not yet known, but he did not ask for money from uh, the church to which he was ministering at the time. So, how can we put these things together? It's the church's responsibility to provide for its teachers, although the teacher may refuse payment. It's not the, 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 the preacher's obligation to receive that payment, although in most cases... He's in a situation where he needs to do so. Now, um, it's shameful. There are a couple things that are shameful uh, in our day and every day. One is, uh, it's shameful how some pastors seek money. That's very shameful. Uh, it's also shameful how some churches keep their pastors in poverty unnecessarily. The worst combination is a church that is, uh, uh, is stingy and a pastor who is greedy. That's a terrible situation. The best situation is a church that is generous and a pastor who doesn't really care. That's the best situation. Now, if the minister is doing his job well, the church is really getting the better end of it. Uh, The church is really getting the greater good. And Paul talks about this back in 1 Corinthians 9 once again in verse 12. Uh, verse 11, rather. He asked this question. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? So what's he saying? If, if teachers of the Word give you spiritual, eternal, divine things, 
and all you give back is some material sustenance, who's getting the better end of the deal? Well, those who receive the Word of God. Now, to enforce this generosity, Paul applies a maximum about reaping what you sow. Reaping what you sow. And here it's obviously an agricultural image uh, in verses 7 and 8. He, he says, God is not mocked. There's a principle here, and this principle cannot be violated any more than, than agricultural principles can be violated. He says, God is not mocked. He says that, um, do not be deceived, God is not mocked. In verse 7, for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. We know that, right? Even if we're not farmers, if you sow wheat, what will you reap? Wheat, okay. If you sow corn, what will you reap? Corn. If you sow barley, what will you reap? Barley. We understand how this works. And to think we're going to to sow something else, uh, sow something and reap something different is, is to be deceived. Now, here he says... If you sow to the flesh, to the flesh, you will reap corruption. If you sow to the spirit, you will reap eternal life. What is sowing to the flesh? Well, go back to chapter 5. All of this flows out of that. Sowing to the flesh is, is sowing to investing in sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, Divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. That's sowing to the flesh. And if you sow to those things, if you give yourselves to those things, what should you expect back? Corruption. That's what you'll get back. But if you sow to the Spirit, and in this, in this instance, it's the ministry of the Spirit attached to the Word of God, the Word and the Spirit together. If you sow, you will reap eternal life. Now, why will you reap eternal life? He's not undoing the first four chapters here. He's not saying, if you sow, then you will buy eternal life for yourself. No. He's saying, if you sow to the things of the Spirit, you'll just demonstrate that you're a Christian. You'll demonstrate that you're a Christian. What do Christians receive through faith in Christ? Christians receive eternal life. That will be what you reap. Now, I want to extend this. And and I think it's legitimate because Paul himself in his own life. Because we might think here, okay, we should pay our, our local minister. We should provide for his needs. Good enough. But Paul was always pushing out. If we have a minister of the gospel, that's great. And we should provide for that minister of the gospel. But there are many who don't have the gospel. And our resources are to go so that those who do not have the gospel might receive the gospel. Paul, in Romans chapter 10, he talks about everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then he asks a series of questions. He says, how can they call on the one whom they have not believed? And how can they believe if they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? And that's the logic of the gospel. The logic of the gospel requires that we send You may have the privilege of being a sent one, but if you don't have the privilege of being a sent one, you certainly are in a position to be a sender. And this is this is what we can do with our material goods. We can invest them in things that will last, in things that will matter for all eternity. The farmer, 
The farmer is not sad to sow his seed. Because he doesn't look at seed sowing as spending. He looks at it as sowing in order to reap much back in return. Now, those of us who aren't farmers, we might think about investing. The investor is not sad to invest his money. He's excited to invest his money. She's excited to invest her money. Why? Because he or she is expecting a greater return in the future. And we need to understand that this is not spending. We are not spending our money when we are putting it towards the extension of the gospel. We are sowing. We are investing. And let me give you a great investment tip today. Maybe you're thinking with all the the volatility in the markets, you're looking for a great investment tip. I have the best investment tip ever today. So take this. Uh, It is a guaranteed investment tip. It will always pay off more than any other possible investment that you could make. Invest in the work of the gospel. And you will reap benefits that are far greater than anything you could reap in any other investment. Look at it this way. What is going to give you the most pleasure a hundred years from now? What could you do with with your resources that will give you the most pleasure, the most benefit, a hundred years from now? Now, these are legitimate things. Our houses, our cars, our mobile devices, our meals out, our trips. But let me ask you, how much pleasure will they be giving you a hundred years from now? Probably not much. But what about if a hundred years from now, somebody from Indonesia or somebody from this group for which we pray today comes up to you and says, I'm here because of you. And not only am I here because of you, my wife is here because of you, my children are here because of you, my grandchildren are here because of you, my great-grandchildren are are here because of you, my tribe is here because of you. Well, that gives you pleasure a hundred years from now. Yes. And that pleasure will last a thousand years, a million years. That will last for all eternity. This is the greatest investment that you can possibly make. That's the second application. First is restore the fallen brother or sister. Second application is invest in the kingdom of God. Invest in the extension of the gospel. And the final one is do good. Do good to everyone. Verses 9 and 10. And let us not grow weary of doing good. It's easy to grow weary in doing good, isn't it? The needs are overwhelming, aren't they? We can be paralyzed. We can be exhausted by the needs out there. We can be disheartened by the thanklessness of those we're trying to help. We can be frustrated by the, the ingrained habits in their lives that keep them down and keep them from progressing. And it can be easy to say, I've done enough. I'm going to throw in the towel. I just can't keep doing this anymore. But Paul says, it's hard. It's wearying. But let's not grow weary of doing good. And then he tells us the reason. Once again, for in due season, we will reap. But there's a conditional. What? If we do not give up. If we do not give up. If the farmer gives up before the harvest time, will the farmer reap? No. We need to keep doing good 
because in due time we will reap. What time is that? We don't know. It's in the time that God determines. And we have this example that we're celebrating today. And I appreciate, I appreciate the perseverance of, uh, of some of our own who continued to try to help this man. And finally, after months and months and months, they're reaping the benefits. But it wasn't apparent that those benefits would ever be reaped. But they persevered and persevered and persevered. And there is a once homeless man who is homeless, homeless no longer. We will reap if we do not grow weary. By the way, this is one of my theme verses. This is one of the theme verses for church planters. For those who start from scratch and try to start new churches. This is a theme verse. Why? Because it's easy to grow weary and to give up. When people ask how it's going, sometimes I say, you know, it's like pushing a boulder up a hill. And you, you let off a little bit and it rolls back on you and then you just keep pushing and pushing and, and one day, one day it will crest the hill and one day it will begin to, to have some momentum of its own and one day it will begin to roll and then the challenge is, is keeping it from rolling out of control. Then there are other challenges to it, but, but it's hard at the beginning. And, and you know how hard it is. Those of you who have been with us for some months say, will this ever take off? And the answer is yes. Yes, it will take off when in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary, if we do not give up. Now, Paul puts a priority here on those who are of the household of the faith. He says we have opportunities all the time. He said, verse 10, so then as we have opportunity, we have many opportunities Opportunities in this church plant, opportunities in our neighborhoods, opportunities in our work, in our schools. As we have opportunities, let us do good to everyone. Everyone. Now obviously, we can't do good to everyone. But as we have opportunities and we have interaction with some of those everyone, we should do them good. But he says especially. Especially those who are of the household of the faith. That is to say... Let's take care of each other. So let's restore each other when we're fallen. Let's, let's provide so that we can have the preaching of the Word for us and for others. Let's do good to everyone, but let's make sure that among us, that our needs are taken care of. We read about the early church, something quite amazing. In Acts chapter 4, it says, There was not a needy person among them. Amazing! Is that because they were all rich? No, it's because those who had means were generous. So there was not a needy person among them. This infuriated, three centuries later, infuriated Julian. Now, Julian was the emperor of the Roman Empire. And he was in the 360s. He didn't last long. He was only three years as emperor. And then he was killed in battle. That was an occupational hazard of emperors. And he was killed in battle. But they call him, historians call him Julian the Apostate. The reason is because he was descended from the line of Constantine. And Constantine was the first, at least professing, Christian Roman emperor. And Constantine's line, in some way or another, professed Christianity. 
And then Julian came to the throne. And Julian wanted to restore the Hellenic religion, the Greek religion, the Roman pantheon of gods. And he wanted to bring them back. And he was frustrated with his own co-religionists. And he wrote a letter, interestingly, in 362, he wrote a letter to Arsacius, who was the high priest of the, the, what we would call the pagan religion, the Greek, Greco-Roman religion, he wrote a high priest to the, uh, to Arsacius of Galatia. Of Galatia. So the same region to which Paul wrote this letter. And so now we're three centuries later, and he's writing this letter. Let me, let me give you some highlights of this letter. He was frustrated. And do you know why he was frustrated? He said, the Hellenic religion does not yet prosper as I desire, and the fault, it is the fault of those who profess it. He says, we're not living up to our faith, guys. And then he contrasts those of the Hellenic religion, the Greek religion, with those he calls atheists and those he calls impious Galileans. Those were the Christians. He called them atheists because they didn't believe in the official gods, the old gods, the Greek and Roman gods. And this is what he says in frustration. Why then do we think that this is enough? Why do we not observe that it is their benevolence to strangers, their care for the graves of the dead, and the pretended holiness of their lives that have done the most to increase atheism, that is, Christianity? And then later he says, For it is disgraceful that when no Jew ever has to beg, and the impious Galileans support not only their own poor, but ours as well, all men see that our people lack aid from us. And then he closes and he says, Then let us not, allowing others to outdo us in good works, disgrace by such remissness, or rather utter abandon the reverence due to the gods. Now, if there was ever a backhanded compliment, that's it. Because here's the Roman Empire emperor saying, these Christians, they're outdoing us. They take care of not only their own poor, they take care of our poor, and everybody knows it. And that's why their atheism is growing by leaps and bounds. Why? Because these Christians are living like Christians. And may it be said by our neighbors, and may be it said by even our enemies, that they can't argue with our lives. They may hate, they may despise, they may reject what we believe, but they cannot argue with the fruit in our lives. They, may they be as frustrated as Julian as they look at Christians and see that whatever they might think of us, that we Christians are living like Christians. Let's pray. Our God, we do pray for ourselves that we would do this simple thing that the early Christians did and that Christians have done through all the generations. That we would live like Christians. That we would bear one another's burdens, particularly one another's sins, showing people that Christ bears our sins. 
that we would provide with our means for the the extension of the Word of God, showing with our, our resources and our commitments and our priorities that that Your Word is paramount and getting the Gospel out to others is is the most important task we have. And we pray by the generosity of our lives to each other and also to those outside of our circles that we would demonstrate that You are a good God, generous, causing the sun to rise on the righteous and the unrighteous. And that they would see our good works, as Jesus said, and glorify not us, but glorify you, our Father, who is in heaven. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.